They protect abusers. There's no way of getting around it. Yep. Love to get around it. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on KSO. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV. On Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day. On the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk. Thanks to all of our affiliate partners and to you for joining us today as we once again blanket the globe five days a week here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today on uh, yet another crazy news day. I know it gets uh, it's foolish to even describe any day these days <laughs> as a crazy news day, given what we're going through. Yeah. But... Um, so That's I guess where we are. it's just another one. Let's start here in a press conference on Thursday morning, about 14 hours before a potential government shutdown on Thursday night. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi reiterated that she plans to vote against the budget bill when it comes back to the lower chamber on Thursday afternoon. But when she was pressed by reporters on whether she will whip her Democratic caucus to vote against the bill, which would uh, imperil its passage in the U.S. House, she demurred, saying only that she uh, has told them that she will personally vote no, even though she views it as a good bill. Talk about your mixed messages. A few hours later, an aide for Democratic whip, Steny Hoyer, however, confirmed to TPM that leadership is whipping its members against the bill. They sent out an email saying the bill fails to provide a path forward on protecting dreamers and asking if they will oppose the legislation. Nonetheless, the bill is still expected to pass with a mix of Democratic and Republican votes. Uh, we are watching that uh, today and tonight, uh, but it is expected to pass right now. And in any event, in both the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House, we will see in, an, in a letter uh, to her colleagues that was obtained by TPM. Pelosi 
wrote on Thursday afternoon that House Democrats have a voice here and we must be heard. She said personally she was voting no on the budget because Speaker Ryan's refusal to allow a bipartisan process for a DACA proposal to protect those uh, 800,000 or so young immigrants who came here as children with their uh, with their parents years ago, that his refusal to do so, to uh, promise a bipartisan process on that, demeans the dignity of the House of Representatives. As if there is any dignity left <laughs> in the House of Representatives. That letter, however, did not specifically instruct Democrats to follow her lead. She is the minority leader, and she is good at uh, whipping her caucus to do as she wishes, but she did not do so here, despite uh, spending eight hours on the U.S. House floor on Wednesday in the uh, longest House speech in record, uh, calling on Speaker Ryan to uh, to have a uh, an open bipartisan debate over these issues. Ryan, for his part on Thursday, said that he will not bring any immigration bill to the floor unless it has already been approved by the White House, unless it already has President Trump's blessing. He said, I don't want to risk a veto. I want to actually get it done. We all want a DACA solution. We all want an immigration solution. I'm confident we can get there. Sure you are, champ. Uh, unlike, uh, why worrying about risking a, a presidential veto? Come up with a bill that can override a veto. In truth, if there was an open process for this, I don't think that would be very hard. Mitch McConnell in the Senate has um, has uh, has promised an open amendment process on an immigration bill as early as next week. Ryan, however, said, I, I can't say what our rule is going to look like, but to anyone who doubts my commitment to solving this problem, do not. OK, I doubt his uh, commitment. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and, it's, uh, it's clear in the words that yep. he uses when he says that I'm not going to put a, I would love to put forward a bill that has DACA and immigration. So clearly he's not going to go for a clean bill. No, he, he's not. He's going to go for something that Democrats don't like. Uh, but that they'll have no choice uh, but to consider voting for because these uh, people are imperiled as of March 5 when the DACA deadline self-imposed by Donald Trump actually ends. I think it's possible, by the way, that a good bill could end up passing in the U.S. Senate if, in fact, McConnell keeps his his promise for an open process for amendments next week. He may feel empowered to do so in the in the Senate, knowing that uh, his his buddy uh, Ryan over in the House will act as a backstop for him and keep any actual good bill from being uh, adopted by both houses. That's what I would do, I guess, if I were him. Uh, make it look like we're hey we're wide open process. Pass whatever you want. A clean DACA bill with nothing else. Sure, no problem. Knowing that it will never pass in the House. Why shouldn't he do that? In a sign that Democratic members uh, feel empowered to buck the leadership of Nancy Pelosi uh, and, and her wishes on the spending bill, the top Democrat on the House Budget Committee announced that he would be voting yes on that budget. So uh, we will keep our eyes on that as it moves forward uh, over the next uh, few hours. But we'll see if we have a uh, shutdown or not. At this point, I don't think we will. Uh, also, um, speaking of uh, things that are just absolutely crazy, Desi Doyen, you will be 
Uh, joining us a little bit later for a uh, another Green News report as uh, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt is uh, doubling down, is it fair to say, on his lies about climate change? Yeah, no. he's he's all over the place. It's a blizzard of lies. A blizzard of lies. So some of that blizzard is uh, is ahead in a bit. But uh, the big story today seems to be uh, White House aide Rob Porter. On Wednesday, the right-hand man to the White House chief of staff, John Kelly, Rob Porter, resigned over domestic abuse allegations, even as the White House itself was still supporting him bigly that despite graphic evidence that he physically abused his two ex-wives Colby Holderness and Jennifer Willoughby both spoke to the Daily Mail uh, on Monday of this past week to accuse Porter of temper problems uh, that for in Holderness's case turned into physical abuse after inaction by the White House in response to that Daily Mail article earlier in the week. Holderness then spoke to The Intercept and uh, explained, quote, he only punched me once hmm. in the eye. She said it was during a vacation in Florence in 2005. She said he threw me down on the bed and punched me in the face. But, you know, only once. Up until then, she said he had only done it in, in a way that didn't leave marks. She said he would get angry and throw me down on a soft surface to his credit. It was always a soft mm. surface, like a couch or a bed. And he would lay on top of me, uh, shaking me or rubbing an elbow, an elbow or a knee into me. He graduated to choking me, not ever hard enough to make me pass out, but it was frightening and dehumanizing. The Intercept also published photos of Holderness's bruised face, which she provided to the outlet, showing the black eye that she is said to have received during that trip to Florence with Porter. Finally, on Wednesday, only after that photo was posted, Porter resigned over the objections of White House staff, including White House Chief of Staff John Kelly, who said in a statement, quote, Rob Porter is a man of true integrity and honor, and I can't say enough good things about him. He is a friend, a confidant, and a trusted professional. I am proud to serve alongside him. Porter uh, has had a low public profile, uh, but he is reported to be a very powerful figure inside the White House, a gatekeeper of the flow of information to Donald Trump. According to Politico and The New York Times, Porter, the White House staff secretary, has been uh, part of a two-man team alongside his uh, good friend, Chief of Staff John Kelly, uh, to both of them decide what actually makes it to Trump's desk. In addition to the praises sung by Kelly for Porter yesterday amidst these double wife-beating allegations, remember, Kelly gave his statement after the two women had already uh, spoken earlier in the week to the Daily Mail. And that's not all it was after, but I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, uh, Porter's uh, former employer, Republican Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah, also sung Porter's phrases, uh, praises. He told the Daily Mail in that article that, quote, it's incredibly discouraging to see such a vile attack on such a decent man. Shame on any publication that would print this and shame on the politically motivated, morally bankrupt character assassins that would attempt to sully a man's good name. That was uh, Senator Orrin Hatch's office. 
Uh, actually, I believe it was actually Senator Orrin Hatch himself who, who gave that statement to the Daily Mail, even after these allegations that I just described to you only in part. Porter, for his part, denies any wrongdoing, but following the publication of the photo of one of his former wives with a literal, with a black eye, Porter finally decided it might be a good idea to resign, even though the White House was still insisting they did not want him to after all of that. Your White House, your president, and his administration. Now, after uh, there was a, a hue and cry about all of this, finally, later in the evening on Thursday night, after previously singing his praises, and only after Porter finally resigned over all of this, and after that photo was published by The Intercept, President Kelly, I'm sorry, I mean Chief of Staff General John Kelly, put out a new statement, a mulligan, if you will, stating, uh, quote, I was shocked by the new allegations released today against Rob Porter. There is no place for domestic violence in our society. I stand by my previous comments of the Rob Porter that I have come to know since becoming chief of staff and believe that every individual deserves the right to defend their reputation. I accept I accepted his resignation earlier today and will ensure a swift and orderly transition. But the, the allegations that he's talking about here were not new. The Intercept reported, uh, quote, as the FBI conducted a background check on the incoming senior White House official last year, the Bureau learned of the man's history of domestic abuse. Porter's wife said she was physically abused for years. She provided a photograph she took of herself after she said Porter hit her while they were on vacation, a photo that she also shared with the FBI. During the background interviews for Porter's security clearance related to a senior White House role, FBI agents interviewed both of the two women. The former wives told the FBI that Porter was abusive during their marriages, according to interviews with the women. So if the White House did not know, of course, it's because they did not want to know. One administration official said that Kelly did know of a 2010 protective order that had been obtained by one of Porter's ex-wives, which the White House believed prevented Porter from getting a full security clearance. So he could not get a security clearance because there was a protective order against him as long ago as 2010, which the FBI knew about. And an, an, administrated, uh, admi an administration official says that indeed Kelly knew about it. So that's right. The man who was handing, uh, handling uh, top secret documents, handing them to the president, who sat in on the, the top level meetings and the presidential uh, daily briefs and the Security Council, National Security Council meetings, that man did, did not, does not, could not even get a full security clearance, perhaps because of these domestic abuse allegations. But he's been there all along anyway for more than a year now in the, uh, in the Trump White House, White House sitting right next to the president and to his chief of staff handling the most highly classified information and national security issues, sitting in on National Security Council meetings, according to Bloomberg News. CBS says that the FBI informed the White House 
in November about the domestic abuse allegations against Porter, according to their sources. So they certainly knew about it by last November, and they did nothing. And then the reports come out earlier this week, and they do nothing. And then the photos come out, and they still do nothing. Porter resigns, and then they finally say, oh, yeah, well, I guess uh, we, we didn't know about any of that. Terrible what happened. Despite the White House's projection of ignorance about the accusations against Porter, several reports have now revealed that the administration officials were very aware of the allegations from Porter's ex-wives before the news broke. And yet they worked to keep him on staff anyway. Top aides in the White House were aware that allegations of domestic abuse were holding up his application, Porter's application for a full security clearance, according to both CNN and Politico. Uh, Kelly, for his part, was among the officials who knew about those accusations, according to Politico, and some officials were aware of the allegations for months, says CNN. An ex-girlfriend of Porter, who also works in the Trump administration, reached out to White House counsel Don McGahn in recent weeks when she had learned that Porter was romantically involved with White House communications director Hope Hicks. And she warned McGahn about the abuse allegations from Porter's ex-wives, says Politico. Everyone knew about this. And somebody tried to protect Hope Hicks. Sounds like nobody did. Two White House officials told the New York Times that Porter misled Kelly about the allegations and claimed that his ex-wives were fabricating stories and just trying to cause trouble. Oh, well, it, it, you know, he's, it, Porter told Kelly, I didn't do it. They're just they're just trying to cause trouble. So, Kelly, oh, OK, I believe you. Yeah, don't believe the women. And I guess that was good enough for him, even though he could have, you know, asked the FBI for the evidence like the photo of one of them with a black eye that they that the FBI was provided, which kept them from giving him full clearance. So Kelly had to know about this. But of course, Kelly didn't want to see that evidence. He didn't want to see that photo because Kelly did not care. He didn't care. Kelly fought for Porter to stay on staff, telling him that he would be uh, able to withstand the allegations. He knew about him, according to CNN and Axios. His new White House girlfriend and communications director, Hope Hicks, had also pushed for Porter to stay on, according to CNN. Nonetheless, by Wednesday afternoon, The Intercept published that uh, that new interview along with those photos and that the incidents had been reported to the FBI. And it was that escalating coverage that prompted Porter to resign. But even then, the White House was still circulating the statements offering praise for him on Wednesday afternoon. When White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders told reporters that Porter was not pressured to resign and that he would not leave his post in the administration immediately, he was going to hang around. By Wednesday night, the White House had finally changed their tune and senior administration officials said he'll leave uh, in the next 48 hours. That, according to The Washington Post, they knew they didn't care. They only cared because they got caught. And they only got caught because there was a photo. Without that, with just, you know, the word of these two women, they would have, you know, continued looking the other way, singing his praises and sliming those, you know, those two harlots, those ex-wives of his who were uh, being so mean to this great man who allegedly 
beat not one but two of his wives. Conservative Washington Post blogger Jennifer Rubin tried to get comment from the various right-wing evangelical and so-called family values organizations out there, like the Family Research Council, these groups who support Republicans but are clearly not, uh, you know, conservative. They're, they don't support actual conservatism, not, no family values. That including the supposedly conservative Concerned Women for America, which cites the fight against domestic violence as one of their top concerns. Jennifer Rubin reached out to them, and yet none of the groups would offer comment to condemn the White House, to condemn John Kelly, or even to condemn Rob Porter. That's Jennifer Rubin, the right-wing blogger at Washington Post. She also added that it is noteworthy that, according to the Partnership for Public Service, the Trump administration has not nominated anyone as the Justice Department's director for the Office of Violence Against Women. Likewise, no one has been named as the White House's advisor for violence against women, which was a position created in the Obama administration. Are you surprised, Desi Doyen? Not in the least. I mean, I'm not at all surprised that this this part of it, especially the Jennifer Rubin, the, the, the calling the family values organizations and that they have no response. I mean, it. We already knew this. We already knew that they were hypocritical. We already knew that these evangelical organizations, these so-called family values organizations, do not actually support family values in any way whatsoever. They certainly don't support women. We knew this, but it's it's just sort of remarkable still to see it exposed support, and laid bare. They support Republicans. They have they don't give a damn about family values. They don't give a damn about conservatism. They don't give a damn about anything that they have been pretending to give a damn about for the last, you know, several decades since George W. Bush brought in the, you know, this this whole uh, evangelical movement. And the media went along with it, saying that they were oh, that these are conservative groups. These are not conservative groups. These are Republican groups. They're Republican groups raising money on Republicans on the backs of working men and women who they have scammed into believing they are conservative in any way, shape, or form. So, yeah, the White House knew about it. Uh, they knew about it, uh, or they certainly should have when he was hired, based on that background check by the FBI, based on the lack of security clearance for Rob Porter. They just did not care. And, of course, this is a president who has had sexual abuse allegations uh brought against him more than a dozen uh, by by more than a dozen women so why should they care why should he care why should he want to highlight this in any way but boy were they worked up when you know democratic folks like uh, democratic donor Harvey Weinstein was when when he was accused of of misconduct boy were boy was Fox News outraged about it then but when the call is coming from inside their house they are not at all interested silent the white house on thursday has been uh, pressed on all of this, and they did not deny reports that top Trump administ administration officials knew that uh, now ousted White House Staff Secretary Rob Porter had been accused by multiple women of domestic abuse. But rather than, uh, you know... <laughs> Rather than apologize for it, rather than you know say they 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 were wrong, they shouldn't have done it. Uh, we knew nothing about it. White House spokesperson Raj Shah said on Thursday that White House Chief of Staff John Kelly 
quote, became fully aware of the allegations on Wednesday, but he would not go into further specifics. A reporter pressed, what did fully aware mean? What did Kelly know about the allegations? Before the report in the Daily, uh, in the Daily Mail broke the story publicly earlier in the week, Shaw said, again, I'm not going to get into specifics of what may have emerged from the investigation, but he did not deny the reports that Kelly, who had vouched for Porter uh, full-throatedly, did not deny that Kelly himself knew about the allegations of abuse well before this week. Instead, they simply defended his, uh, they defended its, its handling of the uh, allegations. White House uh, Press Secretary Rod Shaw told reporters on Thursday that, quote, Chief of Staff John Kelly became fully aware of the allegations yesterday. I'm not going to get into the specifics of who may have known pieces of information. We all became aware of the news reports that emerged Wednesday morning and the graphic images. But remember, the news reports began on Monday, not on Wednesday. It wasn't until Wednesday, however, that the photos came out to the public the FBI and therefore presumably the president of the United States himself would have access to those photos back in in January of last year because Holderness, according to Fox News, one of the wives, she told her story to the FBI on January 24 of 2017 when she was interviewed as part of Porter's security clearance investigation and that she gave the photos to the FBI at that time. So the White House could have, should have known about this for more than a year, but they but they said and they did nothing. So in other words, if these photos hadn't come out, Rob Porter would probably still be on the job. You're damn right. You're damn right. It, the reports themselves were not enough. It was only the photos that made the difference. A source told Fox News that Porter would likely be out of the White House as early as Thursday though he was initially expected to stay on staff for a period of time to ensure a smooth transition. No rush, no rush. Shaw noted that an acting White House st uh, staff secretary would be announced at a later date. Bring back Omarosa. Why not? <laughs> Bring her. Less controversial, apparently. Get her out of that big brother house uh, or wherever she is. Anthony Scaramucci, he would be perfect for this role. Steve Bannon, bring him back. The remarkable number of of Trump officials uh, that have been fired or forced to resign is unbelievable. It's amazing. It's a record. But it's amazing, especially for a guy who ran on the idea that he said over and over again that he, he only hires the very best people. I'm starting to think he may have just been making that up when he said it over and over and over again on the campaign trail. I know the best people. I know the best managers. I know the best deal makers. We're going to use our best people. We can do it because the people are so amazing. I want the best people. So we're going to get the best people, but we're going to use our best people. We need to get the best and the finest. We're going to deliver. We're going to get the best people in the world. We're going to have the best people in the world. You got to pick the best people. You got to pick the right people. How do you feel about that now, suckers? Trump voters. The best people. That's all he gets. Shaw, the White House spokesperson, said that Trump was, quote, saddened by the matter. I believe that is all that Donald Trump has had to say about this. And he hasn't even said it himself. He 
He let the uh, White House spokesperson go out and say it for him. Coward. Shaw explained to reporters uh, that uh, the Porter went through a common background investigation process that all potential U.S. government officials go through. It takes time because we want to get it right. It's costly, but it's absolutely worth it, he said, explaining that Porter's investigation was ongoing during his tenure at the White House, noting that they should, quote, not short circuit an investigation because allegations are made. His background investigation was ongoing. He was operating on an interim security clearance, Shaw said. Well, then why did the president accept his resignation at all if the background investigation was still ongoing? Answer, because none of this ever had anything to do with a background investigation. It had to do with hoping that the public would not find out about this, which really is the core of this administration's governing philosophy, if they have one. Just hope the public doesn't find out what the hell we are actually doing. Colby Holderness, the, the, the wife who got punched by the White House staff secretary, described Porter as having a bad temper and as an angry person. But, of course, that is what made him perfect to be hired by the Trump administration. But don't take my word for it. Here's uh, right wing so-called conservative commentator Amanda Carpenter, former staffer to Republican senators Jim DeMint. Republican of South uh, South Carolina, formerly, and uh, Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas, uh, earlier today on this entire matter. Amanda Carpenter, you are also a former communications director. Um, can you think of a way where they, the White House could have handled this worse? The bottom line is this, is that they protected an abuser. And guess what is a job qualification to work in this White House? It's to protect someone who talked favorably about sexual assault on the Access Hollywood tapes. That is a job qualification in this White House. There is a pattern of behavior. They kept Corey Lewandowski on staff as a campaign manager after he bruised a reporter. Michelle Fields. Yeah. Yes. This is the same president who laughs along with Howard Stern when he says disgusting things about his daughter. I don't know how the people in the White House let this man date Hope Hicks. Get alone in a car with him. Rob Porter, you're referring to. Yeah. Yes. Knowing this was in his file. They protect abusers. There's no way of getting around it. And I guess people will say, well, it doesn't matter. You can still be a good president. You can still do your job. No. If you are willing to defend someone who hurts somebody in this fashion, you have no boundaries. You have no restraint. You have no respect for the law. And if you tolerate people who do this to people they say they love, what will they do to the people they don't know? And that's why I think this matters to a normal person. These people don't have restraint. And it is disgusting to watch. My heart is pounding. It's infuriating to see people go to the White House and defend this as a conservative, as a woman, as an American, as anyone. That was uh, Amanda Carpenter. Right wing, uh, formerly blogger, formerly staffer to uh, Ted Cruz. Uh, I think she says it all right there. And uh, I'm drawn to the where she says, if you if you tolerate this sort of thing uh, to people that they claim to love, what will they tolerate for everyone else? And I suppose that's why uh, ultimately this is all so disturbing. Quick break, and we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about what they will tolerate for everyone else, including their own voters. Uh, I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. 
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence, because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Nobody yeah, here's some news. Uh, you know what America really loves, Desi Doyen? <laughs> no, what? <laughs> Obamacare. Ah, okay. Yeah. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Almost 12 million Americans signed up for 2018 health coverage through marketplaces created by the Affordable Care Act, according to a new tally that indicates nationwide enrollment remained virtually unchanged from last year, despite Donald Trump's persistent attacks on the 2010 health law. According to the Los Angeles Times, the new enrollment numbers which now include totals from California and other states that operate their own marketplaces, as well as states that rely on the federal healthcare.gov marketplace, offer the most detailed picture to date of the insurance markets. And they suggest surprising strength in many markets across the country. Surprising to whom, L.A. Times? Uh, people who need uh, health care are not surprised that there is a strength in these markets, that uh, that people want health care. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, of course people want to have health care. With consumers steadily signing up for the health plans, uh, even as Trump and his Republican congressional allies derided the markets as crumbling and unaffordable, it looks like... People were not dissuaded by that argument. They still wanted their health care. States like California had kept the open enrollment uh, period open longer than Trump's Health and Human Services de uh, Department kept the federal healthcare.gov site open. So we're just now getting these total numbers because uh, ca uh, California was their open enrollment period was open until the end of last month. So we're just now getting the full picture of of the Affordable Care Act for 2018. The Trump administration had cut the open enrollment period in half on the federal exchange. They pulled funding for advertisement uh, and, and other outreach. But uh, yet Obamacare lives on, despite the president who often publicly referred to Obamacare as dead or over. Obamacare is finished. It's dead. It's gone, he said over and over again. He declared that on the eve of the 2018 open enrollment period, which began uh, last year, November 1. That was the day he told America, Obamacare is finished, it's over, it's done. America, to its credit, apparently did not believe him. Yay, so I'm glad that propaganda didn't work. The national total of consumers who selected Obamacare plans during... Uh, this year's open enrollment period was 11.8 million. That compared to 12.2 million who signed up for plans back in 2017. So almost as many, uh, even without uh, the advertisements and the outreach and the help and cutting the, uh, the open enrollment period in half. Experts and advocates of Obamacare had expected a much bigger drop in enrollment, mainly due to the attacks on the system from the Trump White House. 
And of course, that uh, number, that nearly 12 million, uh, that doesn't include the 20 million or so who enjoy health care coverage now, thanks to the Affordable Care Act's expansion of Medicaid, at least in those states where Republicans didn't block the extension of health care to their own residents. AP reports that 16 states actually increased their enrollment from last year. According to their analysis, six of those were carried by Donald Trump in 2016, while 10 went for Democrat uh, Hillary Clinton. So six of the states that increased their enrollment were states that voted for Donald Trump. Even Donald Trump fans like Obamacare. However, the total number of people who signed up this year, uh, about six in 10, actually live in states that went for Trump. So of the total, six in 10 of those people who got it live in Trump states, according to the AP's analysis. You're welcome. Trish Riley, the executive director of the National Academy for State Health Policy, uh, which compiled uh, a nationwide enrollment tally here, says this shows that consumers really want and need coverage. Oh, do you think? She says the market. these are stable markets and a stable program. Florida, which uses healthcare.gov, and California continue to lead all of the states with 1.7 million and 1.5 million enrollees, respectively. That means actually that Florida outpaced California when it comes to uh, signups on the uh, on the market. In 2018, most of the 39 states that rely on the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to operate their markets saw small decreases compared to 2017, according to the data. But in marked contrasts, two thirds of the marketplaces run by states run by states specifically, as opposed to those run by the federal government, two-thirds of them saw increased enrollment between 2017 and 2018, including Connecticut and New York. California's enrollment dipped slightly, but uh, uh, the state saw a significant increase in new consumers. So that's that. Uh, apparently, America, even if Republicans are trying to kill the Affordable Care Act, America is not. But they are trying in other ways, other insidious ways to undermine health care to the American people. And it's especially the, what the White House is doing. And it's incredible. It's sick. As Amanda Carpenter was saying uh, in, in the previous segment, if they're willing to uh, you know, treat the people they love this way, imagine what they are willing to do to everyone else. Well, we don't have to imagine anymore. After allowing states to impose work requirements for Medicaid enrollees, the Trump administration is now pondering lifetime limits on adults' access to coverage under the Medicaid program for the first time in its history. Capping health care benefits like uh, federal welfare benefits are now capped would be a first for Medicaid. The joint state and federal health plan for low income and disabled Americans, if approved, the dramatic policy change would recast government subsidized health coverage as temporary assistance by placing a limit on the number of months that adults have access to Medicaid benefits, according to McClatchy, which broke this story. The move would continue the Trump administration's push to inject so-called conservative policies into the Medicaid program through the use of federal waivers, which allow states more flexibility to create policies designed to promote personal 
and financial responsibility among enrollees. You know, those irresponsible people suffering from cancer and its treatments who are too sick to work, too sick to make enough money to pay for health care. Too disabled to pay for that level of health care. Or even those who, who, who do work but just don't who, who don't make enough. I get, or who don't have enough personal and financial responsibility to have a job that will pay them enough to afford health insurance, those or, people. Or enough personal responsibility to have been born to rich parents. I mean, come on. Yeah, what were they thinking? Advocates say capping Medicaid benefits would amount to a massive breach of the nation's social safety net designed to protect children, the elderly, and the impoverished. A statement posted on Twitter on Monday by Medicaid Administrator Seema Verma said, quote, We must allow states who know the unique needs of their citizens to design programs that don't merely provide a Medicaid card, but provide care that allows people to rise out of poverty and no longer need public assistance. I love when they play the, uh, you know, who, who, local government states who know the unique needs of their citizens. Because, you know, the unique needs of, of one cancer sufferer in Kentucky is totally different than the unique needs of that other cancer sufferer in Ohio, where cancer is totally different, totally unique. Only the states really understand their own uh, sick populations. Totally different. From state to state, right? I mean, this is what they have been. This is the claim that they were making. That's the claim they used to try to stop uh, the Affordable Care Act in the first place. The federal government doesn't understand the unique needs of the citizens in one state versus another. And in reality, the Trump administration and Republicans know all too well. They know that people have gone into bankruptcy because they weren't able to afford their treatment. They know that people would get kicked off of their li of their insurance because of old lifetime caps on on health care. I mean, people can just go ahead and die, I guess, is what they're saying. At least uh, five states, Arizona, Kansas, Utah, Maine, and Wisconsin, are now seeking waivers from the Trump administration in order to impose lifetime Medicaid coverage limits. In other words, if you're too sick for too long or you're too poor for too long, well, bad for you. Critics say Medicaid uh, time limits will pose an enormous administrative burden by requiring states to track recipients' employment, eligibility, and disability status. That additional burden could then, therefore, shave valuable coverage months from people with health problems that impede their ability to work because, you know, we can't afford to have them go any longer on Medicaid because we're putting all of this money into uh, the administration to discover how long it is that these people are enjoying all of that health care coverage. In addition, low-wage workers who may not get health coverage through their jobs, they could also reach their Medicaid coverage limit as if it's their fault that their job isn't offering insurance says Leonardo Coelho, uh, Coelho, a director of health policy at the National Health Law Center. And this would happen to thousands upon thousands of people across the country if the policy catches on nationwide, he says. Susan Wilkie, a senior policy analyst at the Center for Law and Social Policy, said all of these policies that we are seeing are inconsistent with the objectives of Medicaid. 
They don't seem to have a legal basis, and as such, our stance is that they should not be approved. Yes, they are in violation of what Medicaid originally stood for when it was created. These Republicans who talk about, uh, you know, going back to the originalist texts, A, of the Constitution, and B, what it was that lawmakers were trying to do. Well, we know what lawmakers are trying to do. They weren't trying to create a temporary program for Medicaid. They were trying to create a safety net for people who needed it. Unlike capping cash welfare assistance or food stamps, says uh, McClatchy, time-limiting health coverage runs the risk of pushing sick people into costly emergency rooms where they will receive in, uh, indigent care paid for by whom? The taxpayers. I think you have to be very thoughtful here in a way that's quite different from cash assistance, said Gail Walensky, a senior fellow at Project Hope who ran the Medicaid program from 1990 to 1992 under Republican President George H.W. Bush. Otherwise, uh, she said, it does not make a lot of sense and it seems to be cruel and inappropriate. Gosh, you think? So here's what uh, these states are now looking for. Arizona and Utah both want a five-year limit, uh, lifetime limit on coverage. So if you're covered for five years under Medicaid because you can't afford uh, a health care policy, well, after five years, you're out of luck. You're done. Goodbye. Good luck to you. Hope you don't get cancer. Hope you don't have a heart attack. Hope you don't get by a truck, hit by a truck. If you do, it's your own fault. You should have been less poor. In Arizona, time-limited uh, coverage would only accrue during months when enrollees don't meet their work requirements, which the state is also seeking in their waiver application. But Wisconsin wants to limit lifetime coverage uh, for childless adults to 48 months. That's four years? Yes. Kansas would limit coverage to... 36 months. That's three years. In U Utah, Wisconsin, and Kansas, the time-limited coverage would apply even to Medicaid enrollees who meet employment and work requirements. So even if you are working, even if you do have a job and getting paid every day, but you still uh, don't have enough money to afford uh, health insurance, private health insurance, you will still be kicked off in Utah, Wisconsin, and Kansas if these waivers are approved. In Maine... It seems to be uh, the worst of all. Uh, under uh, my friend, uh, their governor, the dumbest governor in the history of the, the nation, uh, Medicaid en enrollees who don't meet program, uh, Paula Page is his name, sorry, Medicaid enro uh, enrollees who don't meet program work requirements could only get up to three months of coverage. Oh, my gosh. In a 36-month period. So over three years, you can only get three months of coverage if you don't meet the work requirements, if you can't find a job, if you're too sick to get a job. Yeah, enjoy trying to get a job when you're in chemo. So uh, that's what Paul LePage wants to do. All of these uh, are now being uh, reviewed by the White House. And they very well may approve uh, all of these. Jessica Schubel, a senior policy analyst at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, said uh, she sees a pretty much a 50-50 chance that these will be approved by the Trump administration. She said, I feel like the Trump administration is hell-bent on trying to keep people out of coverage. So, I don't know. She said, I hope not, but I'm not holding my breath, and I guess I wouldn't be too terribly surprised to see it approved.
She uh, was a former senior policy advisor at the Health and Human Services Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services during the Obama administration. If you don't make enough money, if you get sick, they don't care. There is no, they are redefining what social safety net actually means by completely removing the social safety net. That's what they want. That's who they are. And until something changes, that's what we are all likely to get. Quick break, and we're back with the Green News Report, <laughs> where things are only going to get better. Right, <laughs> Desi Doyen? Uh. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. We really need your support now more than ever. This is not a drill. It never was. Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com donate to help out however you can. That's bradblog.com donate. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Yes, somebody please <laughs> stop the world. Welcome yes. back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I want to try to get to some uh, listener email uh, after this. So very quickly, let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. There was a declared war on coal. The EPA was weaponized against certain sectors of our economy. EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt lies about climate science over your public airwaves. Invest $1 in building disaster resilience, save $6 in economic losses. Dunkin' Donuts ditching polystyrene foam cups, plus California tosses a wrench into Trump's plans to expand offshore drilling. All of that wrench tossing and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Uh, The past administration told us to choose between jobs and protecting the environment. No, no, they didn't. You are a liar, Scott Pruitt, EPA administrator. But this is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I was listening to that Scott Pruitt interview, and I couldn't believe that the reporter was just sitting there letting Scott Pruitt lie and lie and lie again over... Our public airwaves. Yes, it was pretty remarkable. Trump Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Scott Pruitt used those public airwaves to lie about the cascading consequences of man-made climate change. Despite the fact that scientists attribute the increase in deadly weather disasters like hurricanes and floods to global warming, despite the fact that scientists say these impacts are going to get even worse as climate change accelerates, Pruitt actually suggested in an interview with Las Vegas TV station K. SNV that global warming might not be a bad thing. I think there's assumptions made that because the climate is warming that that necessarily is a bad thing. Do we really know what the ideal surface temperature should be in the year 2100, in the year 2018? 
I mean, it's somewhat ta- you know, fairly arrogant for us to think that we know exactly what it should be in 2100. So there are very important questions around the climate issue. And did you see what he was doing there? He's trying a diversion tactic. We know that raising global temperatures has grave consequences right now, from economic losses due to more frequent extreme weather disasters to impacts on water availability and crop yields that trigger unrest in developing countries. Studies already show that high CO2 levels in the atmosphere actually reduce the nutritional content of the plants that we eat, and our emissions are also changing the chemistry of the oceans right now, harming shellfish and the coral reefs that supply food to billions of people. And the other thing that we know is, yes, the climate right now, as is, is ideal for human beings. It's what allowed us to flourish for thousands of years. It is the stability of the climate, which is now being destabilized by the burning of fossil fuels by Scott Pruitt's clients in the fossil fuel industry. And if that's not enough impact for you, the U.S. Geological Survey announced this week that the world's largest known pool of toxic mercury is stored in permafrost in the Arctic. But now that permafrost is melting thanks to global warming, releasing poisonous mercury into the fragile Arctic environment. And thanks to guys like Scott Pruitt. Meanwhile, Bloomberg News reports that the Department of Housing and Urban Development has quietly reinstated Obama-era flood standards that Trump revoked last year. Good. That requires projects receiving federal funding to account for greater flood risks from global warming. And that is very good news because now researchers at the University of Colorado at Boulder have calculated that building for disaster resilience ultimately saves money. For every dollar that the government invests to make existing buildings more resistant to wildfires, earthquakes, floods, and hurricanes, taxpayers actually save $6 in property losses, business interruption, and public health costs. You got that? Every $1 spent on disaster resilience saves $6 in disaster losses. Yeah, but they care more about pretending to their base that they are overturning whatever Obama did before they got there. And then once they see how stupid that is, they're quietly reversing it. So I'll take that as a victory. Meanwhile, California has tossed a wrench into Trump's offshore drilling expansion plans. Reuters reports that the California State Lands Commission, which has jurisdiction over infrastructure, warned the Trump administration this week they intend to block the transport of any oil from new oil leases off of its coast by denying pipeline permits, saying, quote, it is certain that the state would not approve new pipelines or allow the use of existing pipelines to transport oil from new leases. So essentially the state of California has control over the uh, over the waters just off its coast? Yes. And they're able to say, no, you can't bring any pipelines through here. That's right. That's good. Finally, some good news. Dunkin' Donuts has decided to join McDonald's and other fast food chains in reducing plastic waste, announcing this week that this year it will phase out the use of polystyrene foam cups in all of its stores on the planet by 2020 and switch to recyclable, sustainably sourced paper cups. And that is good news, although I'm scratching my head wondering why they're waiting until 2020 to do this. Well, they want to get rid of the ones they already have. Right. For much more on all of those reports and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. I'm leaving here tomorrow. I'll cause you no more sorrow. I'll just one cup of coffee, then I'll go.
Take it away to the landfill. Well, you know, America runs on Duncan, uh, <laughs> and apparently on tens of thousands of years of uh, non-biodegradable landfill waste. Yeah, and one of the things that we didn't get to say was that this is going to take, according to Duncan's own estimates, one billion of these polystyrene cups out of the landfill every single year. A That's billion? A billion. That's the, how many they have been putting into landfills every single year for all these past decades. And remember, you pay for landfills. Taxpayers pay for landfills. But apparently Duncan is in no rush to do it. But 2020, we got to use up all of these cups first. We got, uh, what, two more billion uh, cups uh, to use between now and then? And let pack taxpayers pay for that waste. There you go. All right. Uh, well, I uh, miscompumitated uh, here. Don't have time for uh, any uh, listener mail, but we will try again on our next thrilling episode. Also, speaking of our next thrilling episode, it looks like Rand Paul is now causing trouble for this budget bill after all in the U.S. Senate. So who knows if it will pass? Who knows if we will have another government shutdown? But we will find out on our next thrilling episode of the Bradcast. I hope you'll be there for it. Until then, you can download today's Bradcast or any other anytime for free at bradblog.com. We do ask when you uh, stop by, if you don't mind, stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us remain on your public airwaves where we, unlike Scott Pruitt, work really, really hard <laughs> to tell you the truth instead of lie to you. So thanks to those of you who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. You're the only thing that keeps us on your public airwaves. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. I think that's it. I think we'll have a, a member of Congress on our next thrilling episode, although that may depend on the shutdown. We'll find out. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.